Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1938 Alfred Hitchcock film, The Lady Vanishes. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Barrett, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. I, I feel like I have, um, I've seen some of the like major Hitchcock works, but I don't really know him well as a filmmaker. And if this movie taught me anything, it's uh, maybe I really don't know him well as a filmmaker. So uh, I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, but to start with, what is your history with this film in particular? <laughs> okay, this is a film I thought I had seen, but it turns out I hadn't. <laughs> so, oh, really? Yeah, I think I was confusing it with uh, Strangers on a Train. Um, Hitchcock has a number of trains in a lot of his films. Uh, he lo- he loved trains. Um, no, so the, so my history with it is this is my first time uh, encountering the film as well. Oh, interesting. So I was curious, like, did, did, is this a movie you came to late or early with Hitchcock? But apparently, you came to it right now, very late. <laughs> um, how familiar familiar are you with Hitchcock's filmography? I mean, there's um, there's a lot of movies in it, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know it as well as I would like. I um, I certainly do not know the British filmography as well as I should. So, uh, as people probably know, Hitchcock made uh, films uh, influenced by German expressionism. He made films um, from twenty six to nineteen thirty nine in Britain, and then nineteen forty he came to the U S. and the rest of his films were made in the United States. So I think a lot of us tend to know Hitchcock more for his American period or his American films than for his British films. But he had a very strong reputation in Britain as a, primarily as a maker of, of thrillers. Um, preceding Lady Vanishes, um, 39 Steps was uh, one of his biggest successes in 1935. Uh, his first sound film was uh, 1929, The, the Lodger. Um Anyway, uh, I'm sorry. For, no, blackmail was his first was his first sound film. So anyway, so you have this this Hitchcock in in Britain where uh, he doesn't really have a lot of the resources that American films had, and we could talk about what he did in making Lady Vanishes with basically a ninety foot set. Um, so so that's Hitchcock in the in the British period where Lady Vanishes, Thirty Nine Steps um, are probably the high points of his British career. He comes to America in 1940 and makes Rebecca. And then after that, he makes uh, exclusively films in America. So I've probably seen, I don't know, maybe eight of his American films and just a couple of his of his British films. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was looking at his filmography. I see movies going back as early as 1922. Some of those are lost. Yeah. Um, so he makes 27 movies in 17 years in Britain. Um, and then uh, in 33 years after moving to Hollywood, he makes another 31 movies. So for one thing, he is, you know, uh, different than, say, Kubrick. He is unbelievably prolific. He makes yeah. 58 movies in 50 years. Um, I, and what I don't know, maybe and maybe the, maybe Lady Vanishes and 39 Steps are the answer to this question. But like when I think of Hitchcock, like he has made canonical films and not just like Hitchcock canonical, but like film canonical films. You know, if you look at the sight and sound list, you see vertigo Mm -hmm. on there, you see rear window, um, North by Northwest psycho. Are any of the British films sort of viewed in the film canon that way? Or, or is it really the later works that get, that get that kind of treatment? Yeah, that's a really good question, Sam. That's changed through time. You know, that there was a time when a lot of Hitchcockians thought that the American films were kind of a, 
a drop off from the British films. And they saw his British period as the superior one. I think that's changed. I think probably out of the British period, probably only The Lady Vanishes and possibly The 39 Steps would be seen as kind of up there in his uh, in his uh, oeuvre. So let me give you an example. When, when I was um, reading up on Hitchcock in uh, David Thompson's Biographical Dictionary of Film, which I, I often consult in, in preparation, uh, Thompson doesn't even cover Hitchcock's British career. Uh, I mean, he mentions it, but when he talks about Hitchcock's films and Hitchcock's style, it's all about the American uh, uh, part of his of his career. Um, so, yeah, so the answer is really people don't seem to hold. People, I think people tend to look at the British films as um, this may be overstated in the case, but almost like an apprenticeship. It's almost like, you know, he did these films that kind of earned him his ticket to, to, to Hollywood. Um, but I think Lady Vanishes, 39 Steps, you know, those those stand pretty well the test of time. Yeah, it's interesting reading about this movie. It felt like at the time Hitchcock was making this movie to just complete a contract so he could yeah. get so he could get to Hollywood. And it, it turns out this is a this is a really spectacular film and really interesting because I saw all kinds of things where it's like, oh, you can see the yeah. the DNA of of the like future films that are those canonical films where you're like, yep, you could see a little piece of North by Northwest. You could see a little piece of rear window. You could see a little piece of vertigo like showing up in this. And I thought that was, um, was really interesting uh, to think about, you know, it, it's crazy to think, you know, the longevity of his career as well. Like, so he makes his first film at age 23 in 1922. I mean, that's only three years after Murnau makes his first film. And I th- was thinking like, cause Murnau dies young. It's like, Hitchcock's making movies into the seventies. And I was thinking like, wow, what if Murnau had made movies in the sixties, you know, like, <laughs> like had, had he not died, it's, it's conceivable. He's making movies that far. So Hitchcock has the advantage of both being, having longevity, but also being somebody who just creates work too. Like that, that, that was, I think the thing that stunned me as I was thinking, Oh, I should watch more Hitchcock. And I kind of got overwhelmed going through the filmography and just like, I don't even, I mean, I know, I know where, I don't know where I would start now. Cause I've seen most of the big ones and it's like, well, now I'm not sure where to dive in. So, um, uh, yeah, so that was, I did, I just didn't realize the scope of his career, I think. Um, well, I would say, you know, one, one of the canonical ones I haven't seen. So if you're looking for a place to start Sam's, I've never seen under Capricorn and a lot of people rate that very, very highly. Um, as long as we're talking about the reception of this film, we should also mention that it got the, uh, New York Times named it uh, best film of the year uh, for 1938. And I forgot to see what it was up against in 38. Uh, and then this is really interesting to me. He was actually, he got the best director award from the New York film critics circle. It's the only time Hitchcock was ever honored as a best director. Which is amazing. I mean, yeah, no, no, no. Oscar. I don't know how many times he was nominated, but no Oscars. And of course, you know, that that may be part of what a phenomenon you and I have talked about in the past when we talked about John Ford's career, that Ford's Oscars are all for his non-Westerns, even though he's known as director of Westerns. And I don't think that Hitchcock's genre, insofar as he was regarded as a, as a director of thrillers or, you know, whatever you want, mysteries, whatever, I don't think it's a very highly regarded genre. So even something like Vertigo, you know, didn't which didn't do well when it came out, you know, it didn't garner him an Oscar. Yeah, it's interesting because that's the other thought I had is with that many movies and and that big of a name, you think like, well, something would break through. Something yeah. would be like, well, we have to, you know, but then, but then at the same time, like you said, you watch a movie like Vertigo and say like, well, how did people not see this for what it was? Yeah. You know, because um, you look at it now and it's so obviously that as is 
rear window as is psycho you know like like i that's that's yeah um but, so what but was- that, that also points to one other thing too sam and we may talk about this but um one of the things people value about lady vanishes is that amazing balance of tones and that's why people look at films like vertigo and they say it's, yeah it's a great film but it's kind of ponderous I mean, it's so deeply psychological as, as, as opposed to this film that's much more, there's a playfulness and a wittiness about this film that you don't get in much of Hollywood Hitchcock, as far as I know. Well, you set me up perfectly for where I want to go with this, because this is such an interesting um, exercise in tone and genre um, in, I, I feel like in writing and in directing, like um, I'm not always good at realizing like, you know, the structure of something, especially in terms of, well, here's an act and here's an mm-hmm. act and here's an act. This movie makes it easy to see that because every act is like an entirely different film in terms mm-hmm. of its tone and and genre. So you get to the first act. The first act of this movie is a full on comedy. Mm-hmm. It, it is it, to the point where I had this moment of like, did I start the right movie? Because <laughs> I was like, I don't I don't know. I, d- I didn't know. I, mean, I loved it. I thought it was really funny, but I thought this can't be the movie Barrett, the Alfred Hitchcock movie Barrett said we should watch um, <laughs> because what you get is you, you. So you start with this, you know, introduction to these various characters who are all trapped in a hotel. And it's interesting. You get um, he does interesting stuff with language in this movie. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're in a fictional country, which has a uh, a made up language, which is really just jamming a bunch of words from other languages together. It would be interesting if you were a linguist who knew a lot of uh, European languages to listen to this, because when they're speaking, you know, Bandrikian, I think it is just nonsense of like, well, I know what that word means, but it doesn't make sense next to this word in another language. Well, evidently, Sam, the screenplay translates to Bandrikian. So if you can get a hold (laughs) of the screenplay, you can actually see what they were saying. (laughs) uh, And what's great is that None of it is subtitled, so right. you are put in the place of the um, of the English characters, you know, mm-hmm. uh, particularly uh, uh, Caldecott and Charters. Uh, that you're like they they don't speak another language, and they're very dismissive of the the Bandrikians. and um, and so so even so even like when the when the hotel clerk announces like that the train isn't going to go, and they have to. Um, they have to, you know, quickly get rooms. He does it in English last. So you're watching every other group get up and get in line. And then the, the English at the very end realize, oh, well, why didn't he say so? It's like, well, he's been saying so for quite a while. It's just we had to get around to your uh, to your language. Um, and I think if you didn't know much about this movie and I knew nothing about it, you start this movie wondering, like, I don't even know who the main character is mm-hmm. because the way the introductions work. And I would, I would argue that in the first act of the play, uh, Caldecott and charters are probably the main characters, like in terms of screen time and in terms of like comedic beats that match what seems to be going on. Um, and the title doesn't tell you anything other than there's probably a lady that's going to vanish. And every and every character that you get introduced to, there is some lady attached to them that could be the lady who vanishes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, I was like, I was watching this thinking, so this is going to be this like snowbound movie in a hotel. That's why I thought about the first act. So let's talk about some of these, some of the char- the British characters that we get introduced to, because later we're going to get non-British characters. And it's, I think, distinguishing between those two groups is inter- is uh, important for thinking about what this movie is is up to yeah um 
so Caldecott and Charters, uh, we've already mentioned, um, you know, are dismissive of kind of the the backwards Bandrikians. Uh, they get the uh, the last room in the hotel, which is the the maid's room. Um, and it continues to be the maid's room even after it's their room. So you get a lot of um, almost like slapsticky comedy with them sure. of like not speaking the language and trying to like act things out for her. A lot of like, you know, the number of times Charters bumps his head on things. You also get all of these jokes, which I assume are intentional about like, are they a couple? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, like when, when the, the the great scene I was watching this with uh, with my wife and daughter and the great scene when they're in bed together. Yes. And you realize, well, one of them is wearing the pajama tops and one's wearing the bottoms. And because the other, and if you pay attention, the other set of pajamas is being used to create curtains in the background. And it just is this, and they're, they're such, they're so tightly together in that little bit. And everybody, especially the maid always shoots them little looks to think like, and it's like, and like they're oblivious to the fact that the people around them are making that assumption, which is also, and it's never addressed, which is also very funny, I think in that. Well, a couple of things. I, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is this is basically a screwball comedy in the first in the first act. Um, Charters and a couple of important things about Charters and Caldecott. One is that they are the inventions of the screenwriters. Uh, film is based on a novel called The Wheel Turns, and Caldecott and Charters are are created by the the screenwriters uh, Launder and Juliet, um, and they become a British institution. They they uh, appear in a number of films in the future. In fact, they appear in an early Carol Reed film called Night Train to Munich, also set on a train. Uh, and um, Margaret Lockwood, who plays Iris, is also in that film with them. So they are this in, amazing kind of comic uh, creation that, again, you and I have talked about adaptations from time to time, example of an adaptation that's better than the, the original source. Yeah, everything about this movie that I read makes it sound like that novel's not very good. Right, right. <laughs> like there's there's a concept that's interesting, and then these screenwriters built it up. One of my favorite physical bits they do is when they are going down to dinner, they walk out into the hall, and they're when they're putting their coats on, and they're handing this hanger back and forth as they're putting coats on, and then. Um, uh charters ends up stuck with it and it's like well we can't go back in so then he just ends up like leaning it against the wall it's just a it's it's a meaningless bit but it's really funny um and then on top of that you get um uh, the introduction of an idea that's really important for them which is you keep hearing them talk about the situation in england and it's worth (laughs) noting that this movie is made in 1938 so this is before you know the battle of britain or anything like that but Europe is on the brink of war. Uh, interestingly, this movie comes out in October of 1938. September 30th, 1938 is the end of the Munich conference. So the Munich conference just is ending as this movie comes out. So they're talking about the situation in Europe and I was or in England and I'm assuming, well, this is about the war. This is about the impending war and everything feels like that. And they talk about it with the utmost importance. And then you realize they're talking about a cricket test match in uh, in Manchester. And it's such a it's such a great joke early on that then pays off later a couple times. I have to tell you, Sam, one, one of the ways I related to their dilemma is um, when they have the New York Herald Tribune and they're saying all it is is baseball. When when I was in England the first time in 1993, yes, so, so this is pre-internet, right? I'm trying to find out about American baseball, <laughs> and all I can find is cricket matches and, and soccer games. So I I completely understood how they felt, completely cut off from uh, the most important piece of cultural knowledge that they needed at the time. 
Yes, and and the, their line is that Americans have no sense of proportion. That's right. And 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 the joke is that they have no sense of what's going on in the world around them at all. So we get that we get that comic pairing, um, and then we also uh, the, the the next group of Brits that we meet are the Todd the Todd Hunters. I'll put in quotes because uh, one of them is a Todd Hunter, and one I think even in the credit she's listed as in quotes Mrs. Todd Hunter. Um, <laughs> And you realize that they're having their own melodrama over off to the side. And every time it's funny, every time it cuts to them, it's like the filmmaking changes and you get this close up on um, on on Mrs. Todd Hunter's face. And it's just, it's just like very dramatic feeling. And it's if he were doing something different with the music, the music should swell at those moments <laughs> as they're having these this very like kind of biting dialogue between them. So you have this love affair that seems to be falling apart by the time we encounter it. Um, so that's another another sort of side story that we're going to encounter. And that is going to, again, be important as we get on to later parts of the movie. Yeah, and that's sometimes an element of... Um of screwball you know that you have the contrasting couples and so they're you know so they're gonna they're gonna be the counterweight to uh uh to to iris and gilbert Mm -hmm. and then yeah and then you and then you get iris and gilbert who are kind of fast foes um early on uh in the movie um you see iris getting special treatment and you realize it's because she must be unbelievably wealthy um, yes. because because it's great when 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 all the people are flooding to the desk when they come in Boris leaves and goes over to her and like they get you know meal the special meal brought to them and everybody else is scrounging for whatever food is left. Um, you get Gilbert as this like ethnomusicologist collecting folk dances uh, and folk music, uh, and then so then you get that the tension as he as she tries to kick him out, and at that moment when he walks into the room with her i was just like oh this is just this is like it happened one night like it it just it feels which came out i think like three years before this and it just feels like this is such a perfect setup they're going to be thrust into this room together in this snowbound comedy that's happening in this hotel is what i felt um and 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 their dialogue is is the most screwball comedy i feel like like it's it's they're really good at, at at delivering it, and it's really rapid. I think Redgrave, in particular, is pretty spectacular at saying things where if you weren't paying attention to him, you would miss how biting almost everything he says is. Even when he's trying to help somebody out, he can't help but but uh, digging pretty deep into them. Well, I should also mention that, as is typical with the Brits, among these various groups of Brits, you have various stations on the social uh, ladder. But I, I do have to say that um, when he's in her bathroom... Um, He's whistling what's known as the the Colonel Bogey uh, March, uh, probably best known as the theme from the river on the bridge on the River Kwai. Um, if you Google the lyrics for that film, I can't say them on the podcast. But if you Google the lyrics for that film uh, to that su- tune, uh, it has lots of different versions of lyrics. But there's one in particular involving Hitler and his uh, henchmen. Uh, it's it's a pretty dirty song, and uh, and so that that would have been another signal that he was uh, sending to the audience. Um, I have to just say something quickly about Michael Redgrave. This um, this was the film that made Redgrave's film career, although Redgrave never re- really was comfortable with film. He much preferred the stage. And so, I don't know if you know anything about Alfred Hitchcock's method. Uh, Hitchcock famously called actors cattle. He was not a dire- an actor's director. Hitchcock planned his films meticulously and everything needed to go exactly as he wanted it to go. So Redgrave was very frustrated that um, they didn't get enough rehearsal time. 
Um, and then um, it, at one point, uh, he did a take where he changed something slightly. He would change his accent or whatever. I can't remember what it was. And Hitchcock said, no, that's no good. It's, it's got to stay the same. And so he was, Wordgrave was initially really frustrated, but he was encouraged by John Gielgud, actually, to, to act in the film. And he said at one point, he came to grips with the fact that he really needed to put more of himself into it. And I can't detect this, but Redgrave says when he watches the film, he can see the part where he really started to try. Um, so anyway, this is this is this is the film that makes Michael Redgrave kind of, a, uh, in a sense, despite himself, uh, a big star. Yeah, I heard that story, too. And as I rewatched the movie, I'm like, I don't know. He seems great the whole way through, yeah, like like yeah, from exactly. from from the moment he's one of those. He's one of the characters where when he showed up in the movie. From that point on, I feel like it had an energy it didn't have before. Yes. It was like he was a an ingredient that was missing, and once he sh- once he shows up, you're like, well, now now this is going to take off because this is somebody who, are, every time he's on screen, I'm going to be excited to hear what he has to say or see what he has to do. And then the final the final British character that we get uh, is Miss Froy. And she seems like the least significant of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, this old woman who's a governess and a music lover who's headed home. You know, and I'm thinking, okay, well, this is going to be like a thriller or mystery. So maybe she's going to be like a Miss Marple type or something like that. Like I did, I just, I was trying to like figure out what was going to happen because for the first act, you, you're left with some questions, right? Mm-hmm. Who is the lady that's going to vanish? We've been introduced to at least five different ladies who because who could be the ladies the lady who vanishes um like i said is this going to be a, a snowbound film um who are the main characters of the of the 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 movie like did i start the wrong movie like i just was like so i was so ex- i was so in, entertained by what i was watching but i didn't know where this was headed and then you get one really dark thing that happens at the hotel um, which is the uh, the the guy who's playing the serenade gets strangled, mm-hmm. but even that gets played off as comedy because yeah. it's sort of like, oh, this is somebody who doesn't. It's night and doesn't want this guy to sing anymore. So even though he is clearly strangled, you sort of like, oh, that's a a comedic beat, and you don't realize. And I did not realize, you know, it was the second viewing where I was like, oh my gosh, that was the introduction of the movie's MacGuffin, mm-hmm. and I didn't even know it because it's just yeah. like, well you know people are playing music in the movie this is they're they're supposedly a musical people so i didn't think anything of it and that scene kind of was just like huh that's sort of funny and strange let's move on with the movie and it was on second viewing that i was like oh really really important <laughs> so as i was watching this with with uh with my family um i can't remember somebody got up at a certain point early on and i wanted to be like no 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 I know this feels light, but like, watch this. This is, this is going to matter. But I didn't want to also like over, overplay that. So um, I thought that was, that was a a really interesting way to do the first act of this movie and to introduce an idea, which actually quite a few ideas, which were going to be important going forward. And I want to mention, although they're not significant beyond the first act, there, there are two other ladies. We have the scene with Iris and her, her friends in the room. And I just wanted to point out that was pretty racy. Um, by the standards of the other day. It slipped by the Hayes office in the U.S., but there were other Hitchcock films where they weren't quite as happy with with some of the leg that was shown. And I also just want to say that one of those actresses, his name, her name is Googie Withers, um, the blonde one. She she appears later in a couple of really fine films, noir. It always rains on Sunday and night in the city, so it was just kind of fun to see her there. So we move from that act to uh, to the second act, which is really 
the story of what happens on the train. Um, so it starts at the train platform, and we even have, I mean, we have the 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 planter fall and hit um, hit Iris. And again, the first time through, that was believable <laughs> as like, well, it's an accident. Like you're seeing somebody adjust a planter, and it falls and hits her, and you know she. We find out she gets a concussion, and I didn't think anything of it. This is this is why I feel like this is such good storytelling. Is it has, things are happening in plain sight, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's a thing that happens. And when I watched it a second time, I was like, oh, that was meant for for Miss Froy. I, I it just didn't it didn't occur to me that that could possibly be the case because Froy is so much a character that you see in a movie that is just like somebody you I don't pay that much attention to and you know and and, and uh it takes a long time to figure out why I should be paying more attention to what she's up to and we and we should point out Sam that's another major change from the book in the novel she's not a spot uh right. in the novel, she's somebody who's witnessed something that they don't think that they don't want her to know but she's not a spy and so they've 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 also transformed that character so then we get onto the train and um uh Froy and and Iris are in the same train car with and now we start to get introduced to um non-Brits, right? So we get I think Droppo, the the magician is Italian. We get the the Bandrikian uh Baroness, mm-hmm, we get mm-hmm. uh Dr. Hartz who's Czech, um, and we get the people running the train who I'm not sure I'm not sure they're they're clearly not British. So it's like so now we have the British element every you know, all those main Brit- British characters get onto the train with all these other folks. Um, and we see we see Froy and Iris connect and we start to get some more clues planted. And it's like at this point, I was like, OK, now I'm starting to pay attention. So when when Mrs. Froy writes her name on the window, it was there was it was just like, well, that's coming back because anybody anytime somebody writes on a on a on glass with their finger, that's going to make a dramatic reappearance. So like I clocked that. Uh, but we also get the tea. Um, mm-hmm. And then as Iris is going to sleep, there's this great moment where we don't really know anything about Droppo yet, but we see him do uh, a, a sort of disappearing magic trick with his fist for his son. Yeah. And what I love about the way that it's shot is we don't see it as as a magic trick. We see how it's done. So we, we're shot not from the son's point of view, but from Iris's point of view. So we watch him pull the hand away and then make the and then and then have it disappear, which is really interesting, I think, because that's where we get introduced to like this isn't going to be about uh, when something vanishes. This is going to be about how it happened. You mm-hmm. know, things things don't just disappear. Right. Um, and that's the, that's the last thing she sees before Iris um, falls asleep and wakes up, and finally we have our titular vanishing lady because Mrs. Froy is gone. Um and. What's interesting is so then as what I love about the the way this story is told is that as Iris goes and is looking for Freud, she encounters two types of people that that deny Freud's existence. There are the people we learn that are conspirators, so the Baroness Droppo gets paid off and mm-hmm. Dr. Hartz. So, you know, those are the non-Brits, right? The foreigners are the I'm putting foreigners in quotes, right? They are the conspirators. But then we have the Brits who also are denying to Iris Freud's existence, but it's for all these selfish reasons, which is a, a brilliant piece of writing to say, how can I make these people accidentally gaslight this woman? <laughs> you know, so the, the uh, uh, Caldecott and Charters 
they just don't want the train to stop because they want to make it to Manchester. And they think if we get involved in this, she's going to stop the train to search it and we're going to miss our connection. Um, so they just flat out lie to this woman and and make her think she's going crazy. Same with the Todd Hunters. They're, you know, afraid that, uh, you know, if, if they have to file a report as witnesses, that their names will appear together and that will that will create this problem. So I just thought that was like a a brilliant piece of storytelling, because otherwise it would seem a little strange that like everybody on this train is part of this vast conspiracy where it's like, you don't actually need that much human nature will aid your conspiracy sometimes. And I think that's a, an interesting point. And that, and, and yeah, and that's the reason why the film works so well. I was, um, there's been a couple of remakes of, of the film, uh, neither of them very good. And, um, one of the more recent ones that was on PBS about 10 years ago, tried to stay a little truer to the, to the book. And as a result, it doesn't have this kind of, um, de- I don't know if you want to call it density or layering or just this, the, the, as you are, are saying, Sam, the way that um, the simple plot, if, it, if you call it simple, the lady vanishing becomes complicated by very different sets of conspirators conspiring for very different reasons. In other words, the, as you point out, the Brits don't know they're conspiring. They're just they're just acting out of their own selfish their self interest, and so that's a really um, in, that that makes the whole vanishing interesting, right? Because it's not just oh the lady's gone, where is she? But the lady's gone. Well, why are all these people who have very different perspectives? Why are they all gaslighting her? And so so what happens is you as the viewer you're you're not only mystified by the vanishing of the lady, you're mystified just as much, if not more, by why are all these people denying that she actually existed? And that, right. that just makes it really interesting. And when we see Freud like fall into the the Todd Hunter's uh uh little little room, or we see uh charters bring the, the sugar over, it's like that happened. Like, right. like we know that we're not crazy and it is so confusing when they, when they deny it because they're like, what do you stand to gain by this? And then we realize what they stand to gain. Um, and I, I think that's, that is uh, just, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. And it, you know, it, it's a, it's a critique of human nature or British culture. <laughs> One of the two, yeah. I, you know, I think he's, he's sort of uh, probably doing both of those things and saying, you know, how easy it is for people to slip into a conspiracy if they're just, you know, looking out for themselves. Well, and it's also as a critique of British society, it's interesting because with uh, with Charters and Caldecott, you get you get British sport, mm-hmm. and 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 there's a sense. Of one, I think it's one of the commentaries on the film says that they are like overgrown schoolboys, mm-hmm. and they are. That's I mean, I just love the scene where he's using the sugar cubes to demonstrate the cricket match, which is based on an actual historical cricket match, and how resentful he is when he realizes, oh, I have to gather up the sugar cubes and give them to this woman. So, so, so they're one side of the British side, and then the other one, of course, is is, is British propriety. You know, these they, these two are adulterers, and they don't want. And he he, of course, ironically, is a barrister who wants to be a judge. Um, so there's an interesting critique of private morality versus public virtue. Um, and so it, that's the other thing that's so subtle about this film, and that is he's making some really, in a way that Hitchcock often doesn't do in his American films, he's really making some pretty biting social commentary at the same time that he's giving you this lovely comedy comedic element. Now, what's interesting about this movie then, too, is um, when you see them bring on the um, uh, the bandaged patient from the first stop, like 
we all think we're so smart. We're like, well, obviously this, and we're right. And what's interesting, so so we're like, oh no, I've already solved the mystery. And then you realize, oh, we're going to solve that mystery in act two. Like that's not, that's not where the movie, the Mm. movie is not about solving that. So one of the, another brilliant piece of storytelling is that, um, Gilbert and Iris are, are are trying to solve this and they figure it all out and there's still a half hour of the movie left. And you're like, well, maybe that's not what this was because the magic trick they pull on us is that we spent so much time trying to figure out what happened to Miss Froy that at least for me, I never asked, why would anybody bother with her? Mm-hmm, it just mm-hmm. it didn't occur to me because it's like, well, obviously we have to figure out where she is. And I wasn't stopping to think, well, why she poses no she seems to pose no threat to anyone why mm-hmm. why is she you know why is she the person where at least like you could say well you know maybe todd hunter is a potentially important powerful person or something because he's a barrister and maybe going to be a judge and you know caldecott and charters seem to have some wealth or something like that but like the the, the least offensive character is the one that gets um kidnapped and potentially you know murdered and you're like why and it's so so then you move into act three and you realize oh that's the thing we need to figure out i not not where she went but why did any of this happen in the first place which again i think is brilliant storytelling is he gets you to focus on one like like a magic trick he gets you to focus on one thing and says well that's not even the important thing here's the important thing well the other magic trick he pulls off speaking of focus to go back to the earlier comment about miss Freud writing her name on the window and I mean, this this is so entirely brilliant. When 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 Gilbert and Iris sit down, and you know, he lowers the window, and you're like, "There it is! There it is! Troy, for goodness' sake, look at it!" And then, of course, all he does is these two shots as the two of them talk to each other. And what he's done to you is all you're doing. I mean, I had a hard time listening to their conversation because I was like, "Stop! Stop talking and, and look at the window, will you?" And then, of course, you know the, the 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 twist of the knife is she looks at the window, and then, of course, they go in the tunnel and they come out, and the name is gone. And it's, I mean, it, so so it like it works at like two different levels, right? So you you're paying attention to something that isn't on the screen, and then when you're, when you're looking at it, it's gone, and 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 then the the whole um, uh, the whole experience for her of feeling like nobody will believe me gets gets really uh, darker, and 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 that's what that's the other thing that's brilliant about the tone of the film, right? Just just when she starts to think, maybe I really am crazy, um, and then of course he sees the the label from the T, mm-hmm. and so it, like it reaches this nadir, and now it goes and now it goes back up again. So so the other movement in the film is the two of them who begin by bickering and start moving closer together in terms of collaborating. And then he sees the T and it's the turning point where now they're a team. And then the rest of their energy is going to be moving closer in a romantic way at the same time that they're working on this spy mystery, which is a really, again, it's a great way of mixing the genres in a really successful way. Yeah. I will say that the, the scene where they're in the carriage, when, 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 when the Freud shows up on the window I mean that 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 is such an indicator of other things you're going to see Hitchcock. I mean I I thought so much about a movie like Rope where it's like yeah. you're constantly people are constantly in a room where the where in that case the body is there in the room and there's so many times where they go back to that 
that cabinet where it is and somebody almost opens it or starts to open it and you're just like it's right there the whole story is right there and all you need to do um yeah like and and, and he's really good at that and he's really good at stretching that moment out um and 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 like you said i i think he creates this thing where i'm sure people in theaters at the time were yelling at the screen it's right there you know like 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 as if you could uh, affect them so as we move into act three the movie now becomes this like spy movie and escape movie which mm-hmm. again i didn't see coming i thought this was going to be one even when we got to the train and the vanishing i thought this was going to be one thing and now we get another and here we see all the brits who seem so focused and um focused on themselves and kind of unaware of the greater world now we see them banding together and fighting for a cause mm-hmm. um and they and they become this team that's that's like they don't even know what they're defending other than themselves and their lives, but they, they uh, eventually learn, or at least some of them eventually learn um, who Miss Freud is. Uh, and this is where I think that the, the fact that this movie is 1938 and the political situation is coming, you know, this is a, um, this is another take on the British then, right? If this is a critique of different aspects of British, British society, now we get him sort of saying, but you know, we have the potential to pull together for, uh, for a greater cause, which is something England is going to be doing, you know, in uh, in in a, you know, in about a year. Um, so so it it feels prescient in that way a little bit too. Thinking, you know, this is being made before the Munich conference. And and Caldecott and Charters you know, turn out to be crack shots. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the the nun turns out to actually be on. Uh, she's a British girl who's on the right side. But then you get a, get that lovely complication again, where you know. Charters leaves the gun with the one bullet in case that's needed. And of course that becomes a key element when, when it gets uh, uh, commandeered. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And I mean, and, and, and I, and we see Iris like step up in that moment because there is this sense of like, yes, there's one bullet in that gun, but think of how many of us there are. Like that's once right. you use that. So like everybody's metal is tested. And with the exception of Todd Hunter, they sort of show themselves, you know, kind of to what they can be, which led me to wonder, like, what was Hitchcock's relationship to England and Englishness, especially as he's about to leave England and go and go to Hollywood? Because this movie seems to have a uh, an interesting relationship to being English. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's an, that's a really interesting question, Sam. I don't really have a good answer to that because I don't know enough about Hitchcock's own relationship to to England. I know that you know going to America for him was mostly about having freedom and um and and mostly better resources mm-hmm. you know for making for making films and of course it's interesting you know his first american film rebecca actually has a british setting okay uh, that that was actually going to be my question is does he make films in um that take place in britain when he comes to america because the ones i know are all taking place in in the u.s yeah i mean i can't think yeah rebecca um and Rebecca's the movie he wanted to make when he made this. He just couldn't get the rights. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, you know, I, I mean, Foreign Correspondent is trying to remember. Foreign Correspondent is, yeah, Foreign Correspondent is mostly in Britain, as I recall. That's 1942 uh, with Joseph Cotton. But, and then, you know, he's got a couple of uh, European settings um, or non American settings, but. I can't think of anything he does after the forties that is set set in Britain. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that. And that's what I was saying earlier, where this is one of his, one of his few films where I can think of a deliberate kind of social commentary. And in a sense, you know, when you're, when you're making 
films or other art in England. It's such a such a socially conscious, stratified society. It's hard to do it without thinking about social commentary. Uh, not necessarily the case with if you're making films in the U.S. Yep. So, so after the shootout and the, you know, the exciting kind of getaway on the train, we get to the station, we get our, our Hitchcock um, cameo uh, really quickly. We find out that, that the, uh, the, the test match has been postponed because of flooding. So all of their concerns were not relevant anyhow. And we end with this um, kind of almost welcome to the fight moment, right? When they go to the, the, the foreign office at Whitehall and, you know he's gonna he's gonna um, deliver the song, which is the the message about the the uh, the the treaty agreement between these two countries. And you know he's fallen in love, and he forgets he forgets the song. And I love when when he starts to try to do it, and he does the wedding march, and it's like, okay, your mind has shifted. And then they start to hear they start to hear the song playing on a piano, and they walk into a room, and there is Mrs. Froy or Miss Froy who. Um, it appeared she maybe got shot, but we couldn't really tell from that scene. And we realized she's there. She's already delivered the message. Um, but there is this sort of this sense of like the, you know, Gilbert and Iris are now together, but there is, I do have this. I mean, it's not the end of Casablanca, but there is this sort of welcome to the fight moment. I feel like of like, this is coming and now we're part of this. Um, uh, and it's, so it oddly feels like, almost patriotic at the end, yeah, you know, yeah. thinking about that, which, which was a, again, a twist I didn't see coming uh, as we got to the end of the movie. It's, in, it's interesting that in a film that has, I don't, I don't think this film has any non-diegetic music, only the opening uh, credits, but the music is very important in, in, mm -hmm. in this film. I also have to mention, I had to look this up, Sam, that the uh, Hitchcock's cameo was so late. I was wondering if that was the latest cameo he ever did. Um, and I guess you could rate it in terms of proportion to the length of the film. So this was 93 minutes into the film, so very close to the end. His his second latest appearance was actually in Rebecca. He doesn't hmm. show up in Rebecca until 127 minutes, basically the end of the film. So um, he first uh, he first did this, uh, his famous cameos in Lodger in 1927, and then did it in every film after after that. So... Well, you talked about how how you know the role music plays and the fact that this in movie interesting doesn't have music beyond the opening credits doesn't have music, but it does do a lot with music and with sound. I think the the kind of ubiquitous sounds of the train um, when they're on it um, uh, is I, I think is really is really interesting. And the you know they're on a this is all shot on a sound stage, but uh, both in terms of sound and visuals, it's rather convincing that they are on yeah. a moving train. Um, yeah, rear, yeah, rear, rear projection can sometimes be kind of hokey, but I thought it, it worked beautifully. Yeah, and and um, and I love there, there. There's one sound moment that I love when um, the Todd Hunters are talking, and we're outside the train, and um, he pulls the window up to close it, and and the sound becomes muffled. Then, so oh. it's like we are now shut out. And then it cuts to the reverse shot where we hear them again. So there, it's it's interesting. It's like we're we're shut out from it, but then we're brought back into it. And I really like that little playing with sound. There is pretty cool. Yeah, the other moment where the sound is where the train is one of the characters is also a it's a sound it's a sound uh, effect that Hitchcock borrows from Thirty Nine Steps and Iris's scream um, blends into the train whistle. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, w- w- the commentary that I that I watched, and you probably did too, argues or says that the ambient sound of the train wheels uh, is is uh, decreased in the third act, uh, which is kind of which is which is kind of an interesting mm-hmm. observation. I hadn't really thought about that, but I think the sound is really important in terms of conveying the sense of being on a train. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, a little bit of the gentle swaying and. Uh, uh, this, the uh, the outside scenery, which uh, Hitchcock shot in France, uh, as I said, was again it just worked beautifully. Even even the scene where um, Gilbert has to go outside the train, you know, to move into the next compartment, um, that 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 worked. Which is which is interesting because the opening of the film is so clearly artificial. Mm-hmm. You're so clearly looking at a model, but 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 I was like fine with it because it was almost as though. He was telling us he was setting up this world in which he was telling us it's going to look like reality, but you know it's not reality. You know Hitchcock said that he did, didn't want to give his audience a slice of life; he wanted to give them a slice of cake. Um, and and then, and I think he kind of sets that up beautifully with uh, and, and Hitchcock never shied away from effects which were obviously in the studio. He he really didn't didn't care about a deep sense of verisimilitude but i think in this film he actually achieves it yeah no i one of the things that i that i love about the train the 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 setting of the train is that you always know where you are in space like i know exactly what who's in each like little compartment in that carriage i know what happens if you go to the back i know what happens if you go to the front what the next car is um so you know like where the dining car is where the the carriage is that has the compartments that the the sort of steerage car is behind that and the storage car is behind that um so you get you get this this um pretty strong sense of of uh spatial awareness which becomes important in the scene for example when um uh when gilbert goes outside the train because you need to know he's in this car we know what the next car over is so what does he need to do in order to do that mm-hmm. um and you know th- that that I, I actually like the look of that scene and there's the, you know this great moment where the train passes going the other way and it doesn't quite look real but it but it's it's effective and pretty thrilling and I bet in 1938 it was very thrilling to watch that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um you know that 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 reminded me if I'm if I'm thinking of future Hitchcock that reminds me of some of the north by northwest thrills thrill kind of moments um the carriage itself reminds me a little of rear window where you have all these windows in on these different things and and that's where again learning in rear window you learn spatially what he sees out his window here you learn spatially kind of how the the train car works um and then even you know iris's kind of concussion scene as the train is going off and you're getting you know visually he's trying to convey like what is what is you know we're we, we sort of see things through her eyes as the world is sort of turning that and you get the sounds and visuals of the train but you also get kind of the kaleidoscope view of her friends as they're going away um i think lots of lots of really uh great visuals on a on a low budget i mean i think that's the other piece of this is that there's not a lot of money to do this but it looks pretty great yeah exactly and like i said hitchcock was i mean i you know i think i think that it was the constraints that he had to deal with with the low budget really helped kind of hone his craft Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's a that's a that's a common story for a lot of emerging artists, right? When you don't have a lot to work with, you really learn your craft really well. So then, when you have more resources, you're actually able to do some pretty pretty amazing things. 
Uh, do you have other things you want to talk about with this film? I have yeah, one couple, other piece, but go for yeah, it. A couple small things. One is I, I just want to go back to the Michael Redgrave being this, his first film. The, the actor that Hitchcock wanted was Robert Donat. Uh, and Donat had been the star of uh, 39 Steps and it just, it just didn't work out. There's a, there's a, a scene that we haven't talked about that I, that I really love. And that is when they're um, searching the train and they end up in the, um, in the car, in the, uh, uh, the car that has uh, all the the luggage, and there's some misdirects. You know, they think it's it, they think it's Miss Foy in the in the big basket. Mm. It's a calf, and the rat, and, and then they, they get into that. You know, those fisticuffs with uh, with Droppo, which, by the way, Redgrave hated that scene. Uh, he didn't feel it had been rehearsed enough, but it works for me. But there's a couple things that happen in that scene. I think are really important. One is um, they're sitting there, a uh, very theatrical moment, kind of pulling out the props. And he pulls out a deerstalker cap. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, that's a reference to a very different kind of detective than the detective he's playing here. So I just, so I love that. And then he makes a reference, he puts on a different hat, and makes a reference to Will Hay. Okay, so Will Hay was one of the kind of premier comic actors of British uh, cinema at this time. In fact, he had been in a film called... Um, uh, what was it called? Oh, Mr. Porter or Hey, Mr. Porter, where he actually plays a uh, a, uh, a railway station um, uh, superintendent. Uh, and, and he was a character. He played a lot of um, authority figures who were also kind of comically inept, which contrasts a bit with another character we haven't talked about, which is Paul Lucas's Dr. Hartz. Uh, and he's kind of the first appearance of the corrupt authority figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he kind of uh, precedes some of the depictions of Nazis in the films of the early 40s, like uh, Eric von Stroheim in a film called The North Star, where he's this literally bloodthirsty Nazi. Um, the final thing I want to mention is uh, I want to recommend two other really good train films uh, that also spend most of the film in a very restricted environment of a train. Uh, one is a really lovely little noir called The Narrow Margin, which is one of my favorite noirs. And then there's a historical noir, if you can imagine that combination, uh, called The Tall Target, which is actually about an assassination attempt on Abraham Lincoln. Uh, hmm. Really, really interesting film. And then the other thing I'll point out is the film, so it has, it has an influence on train films. It's got also an influence on other films like Vertigo, where there's this notion of, did this person really exist? Um, so there's a, a lovely uh, noir called Phantom Lady, uh, which, which works with that conceit. And then uh, my, another one from 43 called My Name is Julia Ross, uh, Julie Ross, which also has uh, Dame May Whitty in it as well. Oh. So this, I mean, there, I'll stop there, Sam, but there's a lot of lines of influence you can trace out from, the, from this film. I have to, I have to, when you talked about the scene when they're in the storage compartment and there's the fight going on, the other thing that is so funny in that, um, and it just makes you realize like, Hitchcock's just a good filmmaker. I mean, this sounds silly, but all of the different like animal takes as things are yes. going on, like cutaways yeah. to animals, it's like, oh, he could have made a children's movie. Like, like that's the kind of thing you would see in Stuart Little or something. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it's very funny that he had the idea that the rabbits are like watching and they're snapping their heads back and forth and um, stuff like that. I, I, I thought was very funny. I just want to say I uh, I was not familiar with Michael Redgrave. Um, I thought he was spectacular in this movie. Um, he's my big takeaway. I, like I said, I think that the energy of the movie changes when he shows up. Um, he, my wife and I were talking about him, and, and he's sort of like, I was just, I was just struck by how like dashing he was. Yes, you know, yes. like like he seems like a, you know, 
Ann said he was sort of Clark Gable. I think he looks a little, um, a little Errol mm-hmm. Flinney, you know, yeah, like there, you know, yeah. and and um, and when we got to the end, if you had told me, and this is very 2023 movie uh, franchise mindset, but if you had told me that this was the beginning of a series of films w- about Gilbert as an ethnomusicologist adventurer, sort of like Indiana Jones, I'd be like, that sounds great. I would <laughs> definitely watch the next the next movie where he goes off on an adventure doing ethnomusicology, but it turns out he gets wrapped up in this other thing. Like, like this feels like the beginning of that. And, uh, and I thought that was really exciting. I mean, I'm glad that that didn't happen because I don't want Hitchcock making those movies or Redgrave, but, but it was like, Oh, this just like, I would follow that. I wanted to see what's next for those characters and particularly that character. Well, well, and, and I, the other revelation for me is Margaret Lockwood. I really, and I, and I thought that, her chemistry with Redgrave was really, really good. And she had a pretty significant career in British films in the thirties and forties. So uh, Barrett, what do you have for us for next week? Okay. So, so here's the, here's the stories, Sam. Um, I, I, I picked the lady vanishes because I, I want to do a, a, a film arc, uh, arc of films on the notion of, of vanishing or uncertainty about what's happened. And there's a film I've been wanting to do with you for a while, but it hasn't been readily available. And now it's on the Criterion channel. It's um, uh, George Slyzer's um, The Vanishing from 1988. Um, and not the American remake, but the original Dutch film from 1988. Um, uh, it's a, I find it a really haunting film. Um, and so I've been re- eager to revisit it. Haven't seen it in several years. And so it was because I wanted to do The Vanishing that I thought about, well, what are other films that involve things vanishing? So that's why we started with Lady Vanishes. Fantastic. I have never heard of this film, which makes me very excited uh, because I get to go into it completely cold um, with no sense of what the film's about, other than presumably there is a vanishing at some point. The the title says that. Uh, Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film, even if it's not the film you thought you were recommending. This was great. Like, um again this makes me want to watch uh i I don't want to say lesser hitchcock but like hitchcock Mm -hmm. that isn't in those like upper upper echelons because like this was i felt like i was in such good hands the whole time i was watching this movie um it makes me wonder like what if hitchcock had made a comedy it would have been great because i think whatever he i think he just seems like a great filmmaker and you give him something to do and he's going to make it great, but he's going to put his own touches into it. Um, I loved this movie. So thank you so much for recommending this film uh, and for having this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we'll be back next week to talk about the vanishing in the video store. 